Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back for another episode. And I thought it might be interesting to do a series on something that we call in uh, uh, facilitating financial health, money disorders or problematic money behaviors. I've not done anything on this in the podcast. And it's interesting because these are behaviors. These are, I don't know if I would call them warning signs because they're, they're usually pretty developed that cause us blockages to achieving financial well-being, financial, emotional well-being, and are, are pretty um, helpful to be able to distinguish within us. A lot of people will ask me, well, how do I know if I need financial therapy? And my most popular response is if you're stuck around something. But that may be a little bit too broad because my position is just about anybody can benefit from financial therapy because it is a really broad topic. But there are some specific and and certain behaviors that we can be on the lookout within us or others, those that we love, that we may not be aware of. So we deal a lot with this in uh, Facilitating Financial Health in Chapters 8 and 9, I believe. And the just some background that the uh, American Psychological Association found that three out of four Americans identify money uh, and money stressors as the number one stress in their life, which actually created more stress than work, physical health, and even kids. So obviously money is is a big deal. It affects everything that we do 24-7. And in identifying these uh, money behaviors in our work, we split them into money disorders and problematic uh, money behaviors. And the thinking behind that was something called the DSM-5 that's kind of the diagnostic Bible of the mental health profession. And of these behaviors that can cause financial and emotional stress. There were, I think, about five of them that actually could find their roots into the DSM-5, calling them disorders. The others didn't have any foundation to be called a disorder, so we called them problematic money behaviors. 
many of the therapists and psychologists that I'm associated with, that I work with, really do not embrace, in fact, reject the idea of disorders, the idea of diagnosing a person, making a, a person a diagnosis, that you have this disease, you have this syndrome that really stereotypes a person and can, so I'm told, result in the mental health professional treating the disorder rather than the person. And it, that's something that I can really uh, subscribe to treating people as people. And disorders can be very clinical and lend themselves to the Western medical thinking that, you know, maybe uh, if we can cure that disorder with a pill or a drug or some things like that, it's a very different type of treatment. And to the defense of a lot of people that, that use disorders, a lot of mental health professionals, insurance almost requires it. Even your practitioners who don't believe in diagnosing when they have a client that has insurance, they have to make some type of a diagnosis. So that's the, the reason for the separation of these. And heck, we came up with these particular behaviors probably almost 15 years ago. And that was probably around the time that there was a bigger and bigger split, bigger and bigger pushback against diagnosis. So I'm going to lump all of these into one because um, in the work that I'm doing now, these problematic behaviors are coming from parts of ourselves that have incorporated these behaviors with completely good intentions. The part that has this belief, that has this behavior, when we really dig into it, adapted this behavior usually to avoid feeling really intense and unresolved emotions. So even though the behaviors may not be serving us well today, at one point in time, they did us well. Um, they were necessary survival skills, you might say. So Ron Gallen wrote a book called The Money Trap, and he identified money disorders as emotional and spiritual imbalances that express themselves as continuing problems with money and work. And I like that imbalances because in internal family systems theory, when parts are enrolled because of events that happen to us, because of woundings that happen, we call them traumas, financial traumas that happen, normal functioning parts are are kind of forced into roles as exiles or protectors. And exiles are those parts of us that are really wounded. And those are the parts that have these intense 
and unresolved emotions. And then their protectors are simply parts which can be thoughts and behaviors that are adapted to make sure that those intense emotions never come up. They're locked away. That's why IFS calls them exiles. So I thought it, it might be helpful just to kind of delve into this area. And we'll probably spend a few podcasts sorting this out. I think it's important to realize that these money behaviors are typically not caused by a lack of money. Uh, we've said a lot of times that money problems, money issues are rarely about the money. And that, you know, that's a hard one to wrap our heads around because it might seem a lot more logical to conclude that problems with money, stress around money, can be cured by knowing more about money. And yet, research is showing more and more that's not the case. I'm not a great uh, researcher, but I am a practitioner. And I can tell you that through uh, the evidence that I see and the experiences of others, uh, that financial literacy and learning more about money rarely really solves the bulk of money issues. We've talked about um, anecdotally that you can solve 20% of money problems with more money knowledge. And it's a great place to start. Probably if you're listening to this, you have recognized some money behaviors within yourself some that, that maybe aren't helpful. And you've probably already gone the knowledge route. <laughs> it hasn't worked really well. And there's a reason why. You are not alone. That, that is the overwhelming outcome of gaining more money knowledge for a lot of people. So that's why we have to uh, look a little deeper. So... We have uh, said we've maintained, we've said this a lot on the podcast, that money problems are really rooted in most people's early experiences with money. You may be experiencing something in your life right now that it is a, an issue with money, uh, overspending, undersaving, inaction, ambiguity around money decisions that need to be made, etc. So while they may be showing up real time in real life right now, I'm just trying to think of a money problem that a client of mine has had that doesn't in some way go back to an early experience, an early wounding, something that happened in childhood. And right now, I'm not coming up with one. Most everyone can be tied back to something. And usually, it's very surprising to the person when it is tied back to um, an, an early money wounding. And, and it may not even be a, a specific financial trauma. It may be a trauma 
but it comes out in uh, our money behaviors. And it, it can include uh, what would be viewed as positive and negative experiences during uh, childhood. They can be cultural influences. They can come from school. They can, of course, come from our primary uh, caregivers. So they, they can come from an, another plethora of influences in our life. But usually when we are young and when we are unable to filter out the messages that we're getting as being logical, illogical, correct, or incorrect. So I think we can um, continue on with in pondering these particular behaviors. A lot of times these behaviors are secrets. Sometimes they can be seen. I mean, sometimes they're very visible. Other times they're not uh, very visible at all. They can actually not even be looked on as a disorder. And we'll get into the, the specifics here in, in a little bit. So, and a lot of money behaviors are secretive because talking about money is one of the biggest taboos in our society. While we can talk a lot about it in general terms, wishing we'd had more, complaining about how the government spends it or the cost of food or gas or a number of things, we typically don't talk about it personally. It's kind of the big taboo. Dick Wagner referred to it as a, a big societal taboo. So it, it's not surprising when a person does find a place that they can talk about this, where, when they feel safe enough to talk about it. You know, why don't we talk about all of these problematic money behaviors? It's just not safe to talk about it. There's a tremendous amount of judgment coming from both without and within us in talking about our personal relationships to uh, money. So there's no question why there can be a lot of energy and emotion that's involved around uh, when we begin to talk about these behaviors and our relationship with these behaviors. Also, I think it's important to understand that, that when we do uh, start talking about these. There, there can be a tremendous amount of shame, of guilt, feeling that we are the only ones that have these, uh, these behaviors. There could be just a lot of almost denial and even recognizing that we do have these behaviors, that that means there is something uh, uh, wrong with us. I don't know of too many 12-step groups that are formed around money and, and money uh, problematic money behaviors. It'd be great to have those where a person can learn that they're not alone. That's one of the power of 12-step groups is finding out you're not terminally unique 
in the thoughts and the feelings that you're having around whatever the 12-step group is formed around. Money isn't, just isn't something that I've ever seen a 12-step group uh, formed around, uh, which is kind of interesting. There's uh, Debtors Anonymous, but that's particularly around debt, just not around general money problems. And I guess, um, in a way, from what I've experienced, not terribly surprising in that therapists that run uh, programs like three, four, five-day intensive programs find that if they run on on money, that they're typically the worst attended of any of their workshops. They can do workshops on negative self-talk. They can do workshops on sexuality, on marital issues, on codependency, all sorts of things. But when they do it on money, oftentimes they don't, the workshop doesn't even make. Uh, Another case in point is that I helped found first uh, financial therapy workshops with uh, Dr. Ted Claudz at a codependency out-treatment center called Onsite. Oh, I think that must have been back in 2007. And it, you know, we had a reasonable amount of attendees. It uh, wasn't their biggest program. But eventually, they stopped that program because it, from what I hear, was so difficult to get people to attend. And this goes right along with um, Dr. Klontz's statement one time. We were walking back to our cabin from one of the the, uh, early programs on money called uh, Healing Money Issues. And he said, um, you know, there's more shame in that room than any program I've ever facilitated. And I looked at him very surprised because he's uh, a level three sexual addiction counselor. And I said, not, I mean, you don't mean any program, seeing you're a sexual addiction counselor. <laughs> he looks at me in the only the way that Ted can, can do. He says, I'm telling you, there's more shame in that room than any program. I have ever facilitated. So there is a huge amount of shame associated with money. It's uh, super, super common. And this is something that um, financial planners who are aware of it will see in people uh, when they come into their office. There's usually a lot of shame that they're there. Uh, Something that's very common is for a person to apologize for the amount of money that they have. I think I said this in a podcast recently that I don't know that I ever dealt with a client that said I have a lot of money. So it doesn't really matter what they have. It could be 200,000. It could be 20 million. But oftentimes they're they're apologetic. You know, it's it's uh, reluctant for uh, wealthy people to acknowledge or disclose their net worth. Sometimes they feel a lot of shame having so much. 
a lot of fear about disclosing it, a lot of fear about how that's going to impact their relationships and how other people view them. There, there's just so much wrapped up in all of this. So I think that um, kind of sums up the um, kind of the opening statements to this topic. The money disorders that we run into, the disorder of workaholism, which uh, can be a pretty big one. That is my money behavior of choice. The um, other money behaviors that we'll talk about are compulsive buying, compulsive shopping, gambling is a big behavior. We see a lot of that in our area because we have uh, Deadwood, uh, South Dakota, where gambling is legalized. Hoarding is uh, another one. Being dependent on someone financially is a problematic uh, behavior. Uh, financial denial, just we would call that uh, pre-contemplation in the stages of change. Underspending, a lot of people are kind of surprised at that particular behavior. Overspending, financial enabling. We see that a lot with uh, children and parents. A vow of poverty, that would be a behavior that says money's unimportant. Money's evil and I am definitely not going to have any. I remember a, a quote that I saw when I was in uh, Mumbai and I visited Gandhi's house. And I'm not going to get this quote right, but one of the uh, handlers said something to the effect that Gandhi has no idea how much money it takes to keep him poor. Financial enmeshment is one. We used to call that financial incest and changed it because that was a pretty loaded word. So uh, financial enmeshment, typically between uh, parents and kids, uh, squandering sudden windfalls. And there's a lot of data out how people that come into sudden money, uh, typically the majority don't have anything left within five years. And then poor financial decisions. So we will uh, cover those in upcoming uh, podcasts and maybe you will see yourself in some of those. Maybe you'll see others that you love in some of those. But the, the point is that there is a hope, there's healing for all of these behaviors. Once we kind of uh, drill down in the behavior to the intent and what's under it in the dynamics within our own personal system, there can be a modification of these behaviors. And I have seen uh, parts of people just come together wonderfully in designing win-win scenarios for every part of us so that they can 
modify uh, a destructive behavior and actually begin to flourish. So thanks uh, so much for joining me and I look forward to the next time we're together. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.